that's what you need to do. <laughs> Just don't do it now, okay? Um, before we get into the message, I have a few things for you as far as announcements are concerned. Uh, just uh, one, one thing is every year after um, our sunrise service and our resurrection Sunday, we have a baptism, and it's no different this year. We're having a baptism on Sunday, April 11th. It'll be here at Refuge just like we did before. And uh, so those of you who have not been baptized and have come to the Lord uh, I would highly recommend, in fact, it's a, a commandment in Scripture that, that you get baptized. It's in obedience to the, to the Word, to the Lord, and uh, we are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, correct? So, uh, <clears throat> so you don't need to pray about it. It's interesting sometimes when we when we do hear God's word, right, and we say, "Well, I got to pray about that," as if that makes us a bit more spiritual. Uh, it doesn't. Good, true, genuine uh, following of Jesus Christ, discipleship means at the moment He says about face, we do an about face, right? And so, baptism Sunday, April eleventh. Um, that's uh, make sure you sign up if you're going to be baptized at the information table. We also have a Passover presentation. Just want to make a, a, a quick correction. I said uh, Seder dinner. It is a Seder presentation. Uh, there will be really no significant amounts of food that will fill you up. And, uh, and so uh, if you're interested in going, make sure that you sign up today. Uh, there will be no children's ministry or youth group that evening, no midweek study. It's going to take uh, the place of our midweek study, and the cost is $8 per person, which uh, covers the booklet, which you'll be able to take home, um, and all the other fixings that we will have. So make sure you sign up at the information table today. We also have a foundations class. Um, that's a three-part series. It'll be taking place on April 11th, 18th, and 25th. Uh, following service. So if you haven't gone through the foundations class, I would highly encourage you to go through. In fact, it's a um, condition uh, by which we we can serve here at Refuge, and so it's a requirement. Uh, it it's, covers our, our history as a church, um, sound doctrine, theology, the basics of our faith, and so that's what we'll be covering in those three Sundays. We also have a great, wonderful children's ministry. It is thriving. Uh, it continues to grow. And with that growth, uh, there is a need for more people to serve in the children's ministry. So um, please, you know, if, you, if you're not involved at this time, uh, make sure you go ask questions in regards to serving in the children's ministry. That way we can, uh, we can make sure that everything is taken care of there. Uh, we just emptied out another room that we were using as storage, and it's all clean, it's ready to go, and we just need more teachers, so teachers and assistants. Uh, we also have a couple more things, women's prayer this Saturday, just a quick reminder uh, that this uh, Sunday, Saturday, March 20th, we have women's prayer, and then today, following service, we have soup, lots of soup, lots and lots of soup. <laughs> We have, in fact, we have so many that we had to put some of the crock pots uh, back in the kitchen because they were, it was blowing the circuits, right, Randy? <laughs> uh, 
So it's good. We have plenty of soup, so we'll be able to enjoy some, some soup and uh, great fellowship. So this morning, we are in Romans chapter 2. Please, so please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We will be going over the first 11 verses of this chapter, and the title of this morning's message is God is Impartial, the Moral Person. Uh, next week, we will be covering God is Impartial, the Religious Person. And so <clears throat> this, again, as I remind you of, as I said last week, uh, as we look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, what the Apostle Paul is doing is helping us understand that none is righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And last week, we took a look at the, uh, the, the person who suppresses the truth, and who, in whom we can see a, a declension. Uh, that is, instead of an ascension, we see how it is that they are sliding down the slippery slope of depravity. Uh, from suppressing the truth to being given over to the lust of the flesh to being given over to dishonorable passions to being given over to a debased mind. And now we go into Romans chapter 2 in verse 1, which begins with the word, therefore. So let's read Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Heavenly Father, there seems to be um, a spirit of deception Lord, that has crept into the church from a long time ago. And sometimes we can think of ourselves as moral people who will not experience the wrath of God, and yet, Lord, we have hard and impenitent hearts, not willing to yield to the authority of your word as your spirit convicts us, knowing that we ourselves have the same type of mindset and character as those that we oftentimes judge. 
Lord, there's, there's also a spirit of deception within the world. Lord, that the person who seemingly outwardly is, is good, minds his own business and does well at work and within the family and out in society is, is free from your wrath. And Lord, nothing could be farther from the truth. Lord, your desire, your wish is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, truly, as we've already pointed out, your word tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I ask this morning, Lord, as we study your word, that we would recognize those things that are not of you, that we would not be a stubborn people, that we would yield to the authority of your word in our lives. That we would be fearless as far as the world is concerned and yet have a reverence for you, desiring to honor and glorify you above all. So speak to us this morning, I pray. Help us to see and understand what you would have us to understand and live out in our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is impartial, the moral person. You know, I want to start out by uh, going back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, just reminding ourselves of how it is that the Apostle Paul referred to himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First and foremost, the Apostle Paul regarded himself, referred to himself as a servant of God, a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ, but not in the sense of duty. In other words, he didn't refer to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ because he did certain things every now and then, but rather Paul served Jesus Christ because he belonged to Jesus Christ, having gained his salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who willingly died on the cross and paid the price for his sin in full, past, present, and future. And so the Apostle Paul gave himself willfully to serving and living at the pleasure of one, only one, at the pleasure of Jesus Christ. The word he used was doulos, Sometimes we see it as bondservant or servant, and that's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 1. This word and phrase, bondslave of Jesus Christ, is a picture of something found in the book of Exodus, where even though the slave could go out and be free, instead, this slave chose to remain serving his master, and thus, as it says in Exodus 21.6, his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The slave bore the marks of the master. A genuine believer of Jesus Christ would today bear the marks of a genuine believer as being owned by a master, as stated in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I say all of this 
to help us understand that Paul, considering who Paul was, Paul was a man who once thought like a moral, religious man that he is now addressing in this chapter. He could identify with that person that thinks very highly of himself, that looks down on others and thinks that God's wrath will never touch him. That was Paul. He's addressing the church. Perhaps in the midst of which we find haughty Jews and perhaps that's who he had in mind. He could identify them with them because he was one of them. He, he looked down at the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the Greeks, as, as people who were just wicked and full of evil. He was part of that group who thought of themselves as morally upright, but yet were judgmental toward others, whom they judged as wicked and deserving, actually deserving of God's wrath. The moral person is found in all areas of life. You can see this type of person at work, in our schools and universities, in the family, in our neighborhood, and even, quite honestly, in our churches. Franz Leinhart said, quote, the Pharisee is always present in each one of us, close quote. The leading view of most biblical scholars, Bible scholars, is that Paul was referring to people of moral insight and ideals. It's that person who perhaps at the point at the very end of Romans chapter 1, verse 32 would be lifting up their hands to applaud. Maybe not outwardly, but in, maybe not outwardly, but, but inwardly. But before they could lift their hands up to applaud, Paul addresses those who are just as guilty and worthy of judgment, the ones who regard themselves as morally superior to others and yet are just as hard-hearted and impenitent storing up wrath for themselves, never reaching repentance because they don't believe they have anything to repent of. To the person who has difficulty just simply coming to the place of saying, I'm sorry, I have failed, please forgive me, and then turning from that action, that behavior, perhaps this is the type of message that's speaking to you. You, you, you tiptoe around, you avoid any type of humility before others, thinking very highly of yourselves. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. We, we, we need to understand the heart of God here. Because this is the heart that's being expressed. This is what needs to be the very thing that sobers us up. We need to be careful that we don't fall into this very place.
Paul goes from addressing the person who suppresses the truth, as we saw last week, to addressing the one who believes his morality will suffice. To addressing the one who is part of a religious heritage and thus thinks that by mere title is assured of salvation and being in the glory of God. Because of how he was brought up and the specific church that he was brought up in. We'll see that next week. And Paul does this because he wants above all for people to understand that they all need to be saved from the wrath of God. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Before we could ever come to the place of repentance and be saved from the consequences of our sin, we need to understand, we need to acknowledge, we need to agree that we have something to be saved from. God wants all to be saved from the wrath of God because we've all missed the mark of perfection and we all need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ who has paid in full for each one of us and our sin in full. When Jesus spread his hands on the cross, he said, to tell us, it's paid in full. And because he paid it in full, you will not know the fullness of God's wrath if you believe on Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whether you're watching online or here in person, the significant, the essential point is to understand your need to be saved from God's wrath in judgment and to repent. That's what we're plucked from. This is, um, this is a very sobering section of Scripture. Again, going back to Romans 1.18 and all the way through this portion of chapter 2, the next portion of chapter 2, I am sure that when the Apostle Paul had written this letter and it was read in the churches and, and this was discussed in the community that the people who thought of themselves highly that were morally upright the Jews that were very religious oh they were either convicted or they were offended God's word does nothing less if you're fearful of being offended, then you're in trouble already. If you want to just have your ears tickled with whatever it is uh, that you have as far as opinions and ideals are concerned, then you've come to the wrong place. Because God's word does not allow for that. The church needs to really understand that this is not a, a club for people to come together and be made to feel real good. It's to help us understand that we have a holy and righteous God who has offered us salvation 
by grace through faith in his son. That our very lives should be a response to that love that he first demonstrated to us. We have to take our faith very seriously. Not to give him our leftovers. Not to serve him every now and then out of duty. It should be a, a proper response. Let's take a look at God's indictment against a moral person. Verse 1 again, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? God's indictment against a moral person. Again, Paul continues the thought from the previous section and even connects them saying, for that reason, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Uh, to the one who judges another but fails to judge oneself has failed and stands in condemnation. And this is a reference to everyone. That phrase, oh man, is like <clears throat> what we would know today as my friend. You have no excuse, my friend. We can say that to anybody and everyone. An indictment is a formal charge. It's an accusation. And here's what it is for the person who is generally moral in their conduct. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you know, I'm a good person. <clears throat> you got to really challenge that. Is there any one good person? This is a person who works hard. Comes in early, perhaps, leaves late, pays taxes, helps out his neighbor, follows the rules and laws, gives to charity, and is an overall decent person. So, person who just minds their own business and just does what they need to do. Jesus addresses the moral man in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 and verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And yet, even with that story, we have, again, sometimes a hard time humbling ourselves. Humbling ourselves to God, much less each other. The problem was not that the Pharisee was a moral man, but that he thought himself a righteous man as he judged the tax collector, thinking that perhaps his morality justified him before God. And Jesus, like always, pointed out reality. You see, truth is reality. It's not relative. It's not whatever you make of it. Truth is reality. So Jesus did this. He corrected his perception of what righteousness really is. Humility, that which God exalts, is a heart that is humble before God. Jesus pointed out what reality was in verse 14 when he said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, it was a, a sobering illustration, a parable that I have no doubt for the Pharisee just shook him to the core. Paul goes on to say back in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And that's what Jesus was telling in that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And one may reply asking, how do I practice the very same things? The rich young ruler said that very same thing. Jesus listed a few ways in which we may do the very same things. On the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Please turn with, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 21. By the way, he was speaking to his disciples. When he sat down, they all were drawn to him. Sat down. They all came to him. This is in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. A beautiful view from the top of this, this tall hill. Speaking to his disciples in verse 21, 
fact, as you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And he goes on, this is a correction. Remember, this is, this is where they were. They were thinking that the law was a certain way when... They were guilty of it themselves. Because how tall of an order is this? The section that we're about to read here, verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do we practice the very same things? Do we have control over our tongues, our thoughts, our actions. It's an expression of our heart. The person who judges others but fails to judge their own sins, this is the person the word of God is addressing here. We ought to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Let a person examine himself. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, the heart of a humble person. 
will allow the Lord to examine that heart and expose anything that is not of him. And allow the Lord, yielding to him, to lead us in the way everlasting. But again, Paul is addressing the moral man who doesn't see a need to confess and repent. And in agreeing in the condemnation of another, one condemns oneself. In judging others, one judges self. You know, there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 12 of a prophet named Nathan who very effectively pointed out King David's sin that he committed with Bathsheba. As David judged the man in the illustration that Nathan had given him, Nathan stated that he was actually the man who's presented with a story. And the king was quick to judge that person should be judged. And Nathan turned around and said, you're the man. I want to make a distinction, though. Because this is not referring to discerning sin in another. That's what Nathan did. It's quite clear. But rather not acknowledging any sin in their own lives while they condemn another. What David did to the man in the story. You know, if we continue on to Matthew chapter 6. It starts out with a verse that the world embraces and loves. Judge not, lest, don't judge me. Who are you to say whether I can or cannot do what I'm doing? We ought to be fruit inspectors. By the way, that's what Nathan was doing. Nathan was simply pointing out, you're the man, you're the one that has fallen short. We just don't judge to condemnation. Verse 2 in Romans chapter 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know. Means that Paul was reasoning with the reader of the letter. And because we know it is God's divinely inspired word, God is expecting whoever is the reader of this word to reason and hopefully acknowledge, in other words, to agree. You agree, don't you? You know this. This is common knowledge. Can we reason here? Can we all agree that the judgment of God rightly, justly, falls on those who practice such things? Can we agree on that? It is just for God to judge accordingly. Again, you agree, don't you? God's judgment is rightly applied to the person guilty of sin. You know this, right? You understand that. Because God's judgment is based on facts. And then verse 3, as he continues, says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Therefore, if it is true, those things that you have been charged with, if these things are true, that any person who disregards his own need of repentance will not escape the judgment of God because the point is not that they do the same identical things. Well, I don't do those identical things. Okay. But your conduct is the same. The you here in this verse is emphatic. If you want to deflect, you cannot. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not allowing anyone to deflect this. And it's not meant to wound. It's meant to pierce the very heart of the reader. He was emphatic. It's you. It's me. You think you who do the same type of things as the one you condemn Think back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. You think, what, what a wicked and evil person. A person who gets to the point of being depraved in mind and debased is reprobate. How wicked they are. They should be judged. They should have the book thrown at them. And yet God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You think your conduct is much better? It's emphatic. Do you think you who do the same type of things as the one you condemn will escape the judgment of God? The answer is no. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Therefore, what is the formal charge? What is the indictment? Guilty of sin and not confessing and repenting. So do you regard yourself as being a moral person who quickly condemns others but fails to see your own sin in your own life? And or do you not believe that there's any need of repenting? And do you believe that you by your morality, will escape God's judgment? The indictment against a moral person. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we see God's judgment against a moral person. So first the indictment, and now comes the judgment. Verse 4, Or do you presume, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, the moral person assumes or takes it for granted or speculates that God's kindness, forbearance, and patience means that he's okay. He has no need to repent and God will not cast condemning judgment upon him because God has yet to do anything about it. Everything's okay. It's 
like the man who shakes his hand, his fist at God and, and says, there is no God, and if there was a God, then strike me dead now. See, there's no God. And yet that person is ignorant. Not knowing that God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience is what is meant to draw that very same person to God. Just because someone says something contrary to God's word and who he is doesn't mean that it's true. That's arrogance. You as a Christian see many unbelievers seemingly living without a care and wonder why God isn't judging their sin. I've heard that question. I see the wicked, the evil, the world. I see how it is that they're going about their business, eating, drinking, and being merry, partying, and doing whatever they want. God, and you're not judging them. Thank God he didn't judge me prior to me coming to the Lord. You know that unbelievers often see that very thing as a reason why they have no need for God? His patience, his forbearance, his kindness, his goodness. need to understand it is not God's wrath that strikes fear in the heart of man and drives them to him. That's not what he desires. That's not how God desires for a person to come to him. God's kindness, you see, forbearance and patience is to be thought about, considered, understood, believed on. And be allowed to draw that person to the Lord. Listen, God hasn't judged us according to our past sins, although we deserve to be judged accordingly. Nor has God judged us in our present sin. And although he knows we will sin in the future, he is omniscient. We will sin again and again and again and again. And yet for you and I, God holds back his judgment. No, if we would consider the fact that God knows all of our sins and is able to condemn us at any moment, but continues to have mercy on us, that is the very thing that should drive more people to cry out for forgiveness and plead for mercy. Just plead for mercy. As we read in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We need to understand that, that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Not drive us to repentance, but lead us to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But again, referring, coming back to the moral person. 
the moral person that insists on claiming he has no need to repent of any sin, judgment is coming. Whether that person agrees with it or not, again, it has no bearing on what is reality. Judgment is coming. People get fooled into thinking they have no need of God and fail to acknowledge their sin and his mercy. Therefore, they never come to know his grace. God's indictment against a moral person and God's judgment against a moral person. And finally, God's verdict against a moral person. Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Eternal life or wrath and fury? It's your choice. You see, God will render to each person according to their works. Not meaning that our works will gain a salvation. But our works actually expose what is genuinely in our hearts. Remember, faith without works is dead. In other words, they both go together. One reveals the other. I remind you, even in the verdict, that God does not drive a person to salvation, but rather draws them by his kindness as one acknowledges what they deserve, but are grateful for the mercy that they've been shown instead. The person who is drawn to God by his kindness is grateful, acknowledging God's forbearance and patience and humbly turns from their sins and turns to Jesus Christ. And I pray that this statement of absolute truth resonates in the hearts of every person that has yet to repent. I pray that this statement in verse 11 is unshakable. For God shows no partiality. He will render to each one according to his works. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. God's indignation will be unleashed. Because of your heart and impenitent heart. And, And we need to understand this. The word used... For hard is the word sclerotus, which 
is the word that we get sclerosis, which is, uh, if you've heard of arterial sclerosis, it's the hardening of the arteries. That can lead to physical death. But there's another hardening spiritually of the heart that leads to spiritual death and eternal condemnation in a place in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's the word that's used here, hard. An impenitent heart describes a person who has an unchanged mind. There's no change. It's a person who perhaps confesses every now and then, admits that they're wrong, but never changes consistently over long-term their actions. It's, it's a genuineness of the heart that has nothing to do with the changing of the heart. It is because of your hard and impenitent heart, drop by drop, you are filling up the cup of God's wrath and fury, and at some point, the fullness of it will be realized when finally God's righteous judgment is revealed. Reality is that that day is coming. Tomorrow is not promised to anyone. We always think that perhaps we have tomorrow. Today there's no turning. We remain impenitent. Heart of heart. But little by little, we ourselves, drop by drop, filling up that cup of wrath. And one day we will realize that if we do not repent. You understand the seriousness of this? This is not something, Paul was not like, hey, let's all come together and let's just like go through, you know, the word. You know, it's just to kind of fill the time. This is what we do on Sundays. Let's just all gather around. Can you bring it around a little closer? I want to feel good. Laugh at my jokes, perhaps. It wasn't like that. It was um, something that the Lord used by the pen and hand of the Apostle Paul, pen to you and I. Because just as a believer is able to store up treasure in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroys, according to Matthew 6, an unbeliever is storing up wrath and hell for themselves, according to Romans 2.5. And it is because they have rejected the goodness of God, his kindness, forbearance, his patience, which is meant to lead them to repentance. Now, today is the day of salvation. But those who are patient and consistent in well-doing and are always striving for glory and honor and immortality, which in other words for that is incorruptibility. That's what we strive for. We, we want to live our lives as incorruptible as possible. Purposefully living, deliberately living a pure and upright life because it pleases the Lord. Because here this person will be given 
eternal life. Why? Because that's simply expressing a reality that has been known inwardly. I remind you of the Apostle Paul. He was not always the Apostle Paul. He was the persecutor of the church. He was opposed to the Lord. He was a moral man. He was a religious man. And yet now he's at the point to where he's humbled himself before the Lord. Can you imagine how how just like unrefined? This was a man who was honored in the community. And he completely disregarded himself. He was allowed to be beaten, imprisoned. He, was, he allowed others to say any kinds of things about him. It didn't matter. For him, his whole goal was to please and glorify the Lord. That's it, period. He deserved nothing more. And nothing less than judgment. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4-6 through 6 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The verdict against an unrepentant moral person is God's wrath and fury for eternity. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? God will judge all. Number one, according to truth. Secondly, according to the accumulation of wrath treasured up by the trampling of God's mercy. Number three, God will judge all according to the revelation of life choice, whether for righteousness and faith or unrighteousness in opposition to God. And fourthly, God will judge without being partial. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, quote, It is a truth that drives through the harvest field, cutting down the grain and the weeds alike, winnowing wheat from the chaff, preparing the one for the Father's house and the other for burning. Close quote. God is impartial. 
just as God is impartial in his judgment to wrath, the good news is God is also just and is impartial in his grace to those who believe and act according to faith. But act and respond you must. And even to not act is an act all and of itself true. It's a rejection. I want to leave you with a couple things here to think about. John chapter 3. Only you know what you need to repent of. Perhaps God has exposed a few things in your own heart throughout the last 45 minutes or so as we've gone through these passages. Don't think of anyone else. It's just, it's just us, me, personally. We've never truly made a, a confession to Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and allowed him to lead you as Lord, I would say don't, don't waste another moment. Today is the, the day of salvation. Today is the very moment that the Lord is saying, if you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to empower you to live a life that is upright before the Lord desiring to honor him, to glorify him, that we may consistently seek a life that is pure before him. John chapter 3, verse 16. We know this verse, but we're going to go on from there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. It says in Romans ten thirteen, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Allow salvation to take place in your heart and then respond accordingly. There's a um, hymn that was written. It was in combination of two people, a poem by uh, the uh, organist that uh, was playing at the, this time in this particular church and this lady who was widowed. Her name was Elvina M. Hall. In 1865, they together unknowingly were writing the words to a hymn 
Perhaps you've heard of it. Jesus paid it all. There's a portion that I want to read to you. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. God, be merciful to us. I pray, God, that we all agree. Lord, we have sinned. We have fallen short. We are in desperate need of you, our Savior. May we never lose that. May we never become arrogant and moral in heart without understanding that, Lord, we were once, Lord, condemned outside of Christ, that you saved us, Lord, from eternally knowing the full cup of your wrath and fury, judging rightly, Lord, our sin as we remain in ourselves. But Lord, may we be reminded that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Him paying it completely. Us knowing forgiveness by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior that at this very moment they cry out to you. Be merciful to me, to the sinner. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins and ask you to be Lord and Savior. I, my greatest desire is to see more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to yield to you and to know eternal life, to know that we have a God who takes all of our burdens has taken our sin upon himself and in exchange has given us eternal life. I pray for us who need to repent, Lord, that, Lord, we would repent, we would ask for forgiveness, Lord, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness and you would lead us in the way everlasting. Oh, God, be merciful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.